Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. If you're good enough at something to charge people, for you to help them with it, then you're good enough to charge them to teach them about it. Hello, hackers. Thanks a lot for joining us for another episode of the Hacking UI podcast, where we hack our way through product design, development, and creative entrepreneurship. I'm David Tintner. And I'm Sagi Schreiber. This will be the third episode of the third season of the Hacking UI podcast that we call Scanning a Career. In this season, we have 10 amazing guests for you that are leaders and influencers from a variety of different backgrounds. You'll be listening to our interviews with Brad Frost, inventor of the Atomic Design System, Noah Kagan, founder of AppSumo, Quincy Larson, founder of Free Code Camp and top writer on Medium, and more. We will release new episodes of this season every Thursday. So, for this season, we are thrilled to have two amazing sponsors with incredibly useful products, Envision and FreshBooks. So about Envision, for the past five years, we've seen Envision come from a design collaboration tool into a massive suite of products for the entire design process, all the way from ideation to handing off design to developers. They have tools like Freehand, which is a tool I use all the time to just like have sessions with my client. I just use it even today with a client for like two hours. Um, they have Envision Studio coming out soon, which is going to be the next big thing in design tools. I already got my early access, so I can't wait to tell you more about it. They have Envision Inspect, which I use to collaborate with my developers. Basically, I can export my designs out of Sketch directly to Envision and my developers can get it there because they're collaborators on the project. They can basically see measurements, they can see the CSS, it's just amazing for collaboration with developers and handing off stuff. So Envision in general is just an amazing tool. So if there's any chance in the world you're not a part of the Envision community of users, which chances are slim because according to the stats they have around three and a half million users, I really recommend that you check them out. You can head over to envisionapp.com and start right away. I just love to have them as sponsors, really. So D, what about FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the perfect accounting software for freelance designers and developers or creative entrepreneurs with a small business. FreshBooks is built from the ground up to work for people like us, let's say non-accountants. They have some really powerful features like integration with Stripe, expense tracking, and a customer support team that actually picks up the phone and works with you to find the perfect solution. Actually, my favorite part about FreshBooks is the super smart notifications they send, which show you the highest priority task you can do right now in order to improve your business. Again, if you're an experienced accountant and you're looking for the all-powerful, analytical monster of a tool, okay, this is not it. But if you're like us and you're just looking to get some understanding of your business and keep track of things without wasting hours of your time, then this is exactly what you need. If you want to see what it's all about, FreshBooks gives you a 30-day free trial and doesn't even require a credit card to log in. Okay, so onto our episode today. 
Our guest today made an amazing choice in his career. He started out as a developer, but then found something he's passionate for and specialized on that one true thing and eventually built an amazing personal brand around it. We're talking about none other than Samuel Ulick, founder of UserOnboard.com and author of The Elements of User Onboarding. Let's get hacking! episode of the Hacking UI podcast and we are today here with Samuel Hewitt. Samuel, what's up? Did I say your name correctly? You did. It's not very often that it gets pronounced correctly, but you nailed it. <laughs> so David and I are really excited to have you here because we've been both following you for a while. Myself specifically, I've been following you, I think, since you launched user onboarding ever since the first teardown. And I've been loving your stuff and we organize so many questions. But first, before we begin, how about you tell us a bit about yourself? What are you doing right now? What are you focused on? And just in general about how you got to where you are right now? Sure. So I am a user experience designer and user experience design is my background. And before that, I was a developer and eventually focused a lot on customer success as well as user experience design and found that one really crucial part of the experience that leads to customers becoming successful is the user onboarding experience. And when I saw that there was no one who was really kind of picking that as a topic to really thoroughly explore, I figured someone should do it and I didn't have a good reason for it not to be me. So that was (laughs) something I chose to focus very specifically on almost four years ago and wow. I have been doing that ever since. Nice. And that got you very far following along and you know seeing the first tear down and then all of a sudden you have I saw like things being added to the site. So <laughs> it was really nice seeing the development of this at least like you know from the person who's following standpoint. <laughs> oh, and cool. what are you doing right now? Like what's your focus on right now in terms of business? Uh, well, I'm, you know, user onboarding for sure is is still the, the dominant theme. I work as a consultant with companies large and small on their own onboarding experiences. And I'm also just now starting to offer a new service that I personally am really excited about. We Instead of going in and trying to apportion the design or engineering resources to go in and like overhaul the interface or the initial experience within the software itself, to instead take a longer view and use lifecycle emails over time to prompt people into action, discover what the highest ROI actions that people should even be taking are understand what kind of terminology and subject lines get some more open rates and things like that. So that's one area that I've been finding to be much more relevant than when I initially started studying user onboarding and, and something that I'm super excited to be focusing more and more on these days. Nice. It's because you found that it's like when you come to an organization and they already have everything going on with the interface, but their user onboarding sucks, then you found that you give them a lot of feedback to actually change their interface. And that's hard because it's a company. Yeah, exactly. It's something where most companies are by default in a constant state of trying to crank out features, trying to squish bugs, execute on their product roadmap. And I imagine most companies, if not all, feel like they wish that they could do more of that than they already are. So pulling resources away to apply them to something like user onboarding 
you know, in my opinion, is a very good idea, but I can understand how it's a difficult decision to make. And so a lot of times as a consultant, I will come in and make some recommendations that people are pretty excited about, but then it isn't necessarily immediately borne out in like an overhaul of the product or anything like that. So through my experience working with companies, I found that when the product itself can become a little bit territorial or, or difficult to like pull resources away from one thing to focus on another, emails are something that nobody really owns or particularly cares about and you can just kind of go to town with. And, and it's also so inherently analytical and metrics driven as far as opens and rates and unsubscribes and what kind of on-site activity they caused. So for all of those reasons, I found that you can get a lot more bang for your buck by focusing on those as opposed to completely trying to overhaul your product, which I would also say is generally a good idea, but I just understand the reality of it. So can you walk us through that a little bit? That's really interesting insight. So basically you're seeing that companies are able to implement email programs to test things with their users much faster than they are with their website itself or their app itself. Yeah, I mean, one of the fundamental concepts is that when you look at user onboarding in general, just as like a problem to be solved, you want more people to do more of the right things when they start. And what I find a lot of the time is that companies, even when they are in a position to invest in user onboarding, aren't necessarily operating from a high degree of empirical confidence as to what those right things necessarily even are. And so you can invest a lot of money in automating your experience within the software or changing your interface around. But if you're changing it around to get people to do things that aren't necessarily very highly correlated with customer success or, you know, user retention in general, then you're kind of just rearranging, you know, the furniture a little bit. So what I really like to do is use lifecycle emails as a prompt to get people to do more things like, hey, did you know that if you upload photos of your Airbnb listing, you're six times more likely to get quality responses or whatever that sort of, you know, call to action might Mm -hmm. be. And then see if indeed you can get more people to upload photos does that actually correlate to them becoming more successful using Airbnb? If so, then you can take those learnings and then use that highly researched confidence to make some fundamental changes to the product. But I wouldn't recommend just going in and and making some really big changes just based off of kind of gut feel or whatever that might be. And so emails are a great place to really rapidly iterate in a really lightweight way to discover what it is that you should be even getting people to do. And then you can make some changes to your marketing experience, your advertisement, copy, your product itself. And then of course, not only are the emails a research tool, but they're also really effective at getting people to do those things once you have figured out what people should do. So to me, it's really a win-win on all sides of the equation. That is so cool. Email is the new MVP, it sounds like. It kind of is. Yeah, you can think of it. You know, the term that I sort of use in my head is continuous customer development. So kind of similar in that sense, for sure. If you can go back and explain one term just to make sure that everyone who's listening understands. You said lifecycle emails. Mm -hmm. What are lifecycle emails exactly? I can start by, I mean, they are emails, of course. So that doesn't narrow things down very much, but that kind of (laughs) is is the basis. (laughs) And then from there, it's probably easier to describe what they're not. So you may be familiar with getting email blasts or newsletters or things like that, where you sign up for something, maybe you opted in intentionally, or maybe you opted in unintentionally, but then you start receiving emails that are basically created to, to be sent out 
in mass in a way that's not very highly customized. Maybe it's like, hello, first name, and it swaps out with your first name or something like that. But it's not really based off of your relationship with the product. And it's not really prompting you into action. It's more of just kind of delivering information or staying on your radar or letting you know about a sale or something like that. So those are very marketing heavy and they're not very highly personalized. There's also a term called drip emails, which if you sign up like for a course or something like that, it will send out email that might be a little bit more customized to you, but it's still based on a fixed time interval where you just get an email every other day or every Monday or whatever that might be. And what's different about lifecycle emails is that they're very much focused on advancing your progress within the product and they are custom tailored to helping you achieve that based off of what the product knows that you've already done inside it. So, you know, in the example, like uploading photos to an Airbnb listing, if Airbnb knows that you created a listing, but have only uploaded one photo, they could send you an email that says, here's why it's a good idea to upload multiple photos. And here's a big button for you to click to go and start doing that. Um, And so in that way, it kind of deep link you into the product itself and also have you tee you up with the ambition to take on one particular meaningful action rather than just kind of talking about themselves or or whatever that might be. Does that distinction help or, or, I mean, I can go deeper. Yeah, very cool. Okay. So it's basically, let's say automation emails that are triggered by events that the user should have through the normal onboarding flow and their use of the product in general. Yeah, exactly. And and it can be, you know, triggered by a user doing something or not doing something. So if someone has created an account, but hasn't, you know, created a project or whatever it is that your software does, you know, six days go by, then you can send them a prompt that says, hey, we recommend that you do this. It's to your benefit for these reasons. Big fat button. Here you go. And it's so interesting to me for a number of reasons. One being just like how you craft that message and how you send that signal to prompt someone into action for one thing is, is just really inherently interesting to me as a designer working in, within the really tight constraints of basically words inside a letter is really interesting and then there are other things like you can test subject lines until the cows come home and see which ones really resonate the most you can test the timing of the email so maybe if you send it two days after instead of six days after there would be an uptick in engagement or that would correlate with users being retained for longer all kinds of things along those lines so yeah exactly awesome. and and who do you work within the companies to to create those uh like what who do you work within the companies and what tools do you use in order to create those sequences yeah who i work with in the companies whether it's for lifecycle emails or onboarding in general can really really vary it's something where i think a lot of companies value user onboarding there's a term that i use to describe it which is the known grown where people are like oh i know our onboarding sucks <laughs> and and like they, they feel it in some sort of embodied kind of way but a lot of companies are not doing as much with it as they would like to and i think one reason for that is the way that the organizations are set up a lot of times you have what's considered to be a traditional marketing team or department and a product team or department and marketing is mostly concerned with getting on people's radar, driving people to sign up or be aware of the product and then ultimately sign up. And then once someone's signed up, marketing is kind of done with them. They've moved off of like the marketing assembly line. And then product teams or departments usually are focused on, like I was mentioning, 
cranking out new features, creating better stability within the product, kind of designing for power users, so to speak. But how you get marketing signups to turn into products power users is not something that tends to have representation within the organizational structure. And so a lot of times when I work with a company on their onboarding, I might be working with their user experience or customer success team. I might be working with their product team. I might be working with their marketing team who's just looking to go deeper into the conversion funnel. I've worked with people who have customer support roles. It, it can really, really vary from one organization to another based off of how they're organized. And then as far as specifically lifecycle emails, like how to work within those, initially when I first started working with companies in this capacity, I found very quickly that they can be really all over the board. Most companies are using some kind of unholy combination of HubSpot, Intercom, Mandrill. It's a lot of a mishmash a lot of times of like, different third-party products that may or may not be talking to each other or may or may not be um, being sent based off of the same access to the same analytics and all of those kind of things. And so a lot of times it's really an odd combination of different players that are involved. A lot of times an odd combination of different departments within an organization as well. Maybe it's owned by marketing because it's emails, but it's really a product related concern or it was created to address a customer support issue or whatever that might be. And so I quickly realized that for me to be able to work with companies and make meaningful additions to, to their overall customer experience, that I would really need to just pick one kind of software and move forward with that. And after doing a fair amount of research, I landed on Intercom as being kind of the best tool in the toolbox for specifically what it is that I'm looking to help companies with. And that would be for, that would be for everything, for the emails as well, for the data, or you have a full stack that you're using and Intercom is part of it. Yeah, exactly. The idea is to wring as much value out of Intercom as possible. So fortunately, since they do have the email creation and sending functionality, in addition to having the passive analytics side of things, it's kind of a best of both worlds in that way. Awesome. And I want to switch a bit the conversation from like, you know, the professional side, the nitty gritty of how you work with companies into a bit more about you and about your way as a designer and as I guess an entrepreneur. So you focus on user onboarding so much. You took that and you developed that. And that I think is what made you so successful. Have you read the book, The One Thing, like before you did that? Uh, I, I did not. I haven't read a whole lot of business okay. books in general. All right. Because it talks really about, you know, taking one thing and kind of like focusing on it. And it's a great thing that you did that. Um, it looks like it's working. <laughs> and you seem to be doing a lot of client work, workshops, and you also have the book that we would like you to talk about. What's your kind of financial model look like today? All your activities together? Well, I was, was and am, uh, continue to be, really influenced by a consultant, designer, entrepreneur named Brennan Dunn, who has a whole very complicated entrepreneurial history unto himself. But one thing that I picked up from him is the notion of your company existing to facilitate progress in your customers' lives. And if you think of that progress in terms of moving people up a staircase, of value, I guess you could say, if you want to use kind of a bland 
corporate sort of word. But basically, the way that I really approach my business is that it exists to help people become better at helping their users become successful when signing up for their product. And there are different capacities in which I can be helpful. You know, if you think of like the floor or like the first stair step as being things that I offer for free, I, you know, write articles, I put out the teardowns, as you've mentioned on the user onboard site, things along those lines, you know, maybe occasionally webinars or things like that. And so when I put that out for free, it's the idea is that it's a little bit helpful to people for no cost at all with the idea of, of helping them cultivate a sensibility and an appreciation for the topic user onboarding so that when they want to step up their game, I have something in place for wherever they happen to be. So if you want to kind of like dip your toe in the water, I would recommend picking up the book, for example. And then that works for me as well, because it's something that I poured a ton of my heart and soul into for several months. But now it's what you might call passive income, where I wake up and I have sold however many copies while I was sleeping kind of a thing. So the the economies of scale work well because it's a digital delivery and it's not the same as paying for my consulting rate, but it's also not like energy in is equal to the energy out at this point for sure. As you work your way up the staircase of wanting to become better at user onboarding, I have different offerings in place for providing commensurate value for wherever you may happen to be. So if you are wanting to take it things further than just whatever you can do by teaching yourself with the book, you could attend a workshop. And you know, it's also a cumulative sort of thing because then the book and all of the associated materials of like interviews and video walkthroughs and all kinds of things are included with the workshop as well. And then if you wanted to go even further, you can bring me in as a consultant or, you know, this lifecycle email service that I've been talking about and things like that. So I don't have a ton of stair steps in place, but the idea being that, you know, if you identify a really big gap between two of them, you could probably come up with an offering position somewhere in between, or maybe even a couple different offerings positioned in between and meet people where they are with the appropriate amount of value that they're looking to receive. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it seems like you created funnels. It's basically created a really good funnel for, for people to convert, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I, I would also want to be clear, and I'm not just saying this from like a place of modesty or humility, but like, it's <laughs> very unsophisticated <laughs> on, on my end. Like, it's like, oh, I guess people would probably want this thing. And then I make it and like, there, there's an embarrassing amount of low hanging fruit in my own customer experience that I've created. So yeah, it's definitely not something that's like really finely tuned or, or you know, some stroke of genius. It's just more about trying to identify what people are looking for and find different compelling ways to provide it to them. Okay, so let's just take a short break for our sponsors today. First, I want to talk to you about Envision. In the past five years, we've seen Envision come from a design collaboration to into a massive suite of products for the entire design process, all the way from ideation to handing off design to developers. They have tools like Freehand, which you can use to, for, for like ideation, wireframing, and getting feedback from clients. They are also soon releasing Envision Studio, which is a robust design tool, including micro-interactions. They have Envision Prototypes, which we all use and love to create prototypes and collaborate with stakeholders. And of course, Envision Inspect, which allows you to hand off your Envision prototypes for developers directly from within Sketch or Photoshop. So, if there's any chance in the world you're not a part of the Envision community of users, which chances are slim that you aren't, because according to the stats, they have over three and a half million users. So I really recommend that you check them out and you can head over to envisionapp.com and get started right away. FreshBooks is the perfect accounting software for freelance designers and developers or creative entrepreneurs with a small business. 
FreshBooks is built from the ground up to work for people like us, let's say non-accountants. They have some really powerful features like integration with Stripe, expense tracking, and a customer support team that actually picks up the phone and works with you to find the perfect solution. Actually, my favorite part about FreshBooks is the super smart notifications they send, which show you the highest priority task you can do right now in order to improve your business. Again, if you're an experienced accountant and you're looking for the all-powerful analytical monster of a tool, okay, this is not it. But if you're like us and you're just looking to get some understanding of your business and keep track of things without wasting hours of your time, then this is exactly what you need. If you want to see what it's all about, FreshBooks gives you a 30-day free trial and doesn't even require a credit card to log in. Okay, so let's talk about the book for a second because we haven't talked about it at all. So can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. What would you like to know? I saw it includes expert interviews and it's an e-book, right? It's not like a physical book. It is not yet. I am strongly inclined to update it as a second edition and then probably do a print run, even if it's just kind mm-hmm. of like as a vanity thing. But as of now, it is purely digital. Correct? Okay. So and so it's digital. It's I'm, I'm just giving a bit of info for the people who don't know about about the book. Okay. So basically, it's an ebook about user onboarding where you share all your tactics and all your strategy, whatever you learned past years. And it's full of images and examples. And you actually you did it in Keynote, right? Yes, that's true. I did do that. <laughs> that's amazing. A full book and in keynote. That's amazing. <laughs> and also there's an audio version and expert interviews and worksheets. And it's like one big package. It's not really just a book. Yeah, right. I would agree with that for sure. I mean, it's offered in the just the book version as well. But there's what I call the complete package, which is all of the materials that you just mentioned and a couple more all added in, into a single package. Yeah, yeah either either way. Okay. And in terms of like creating this package, so did you find that having an ebook works well enough that you didn't really need a physical book or was doing a physical book just like uh, complicated because it's, you know, printing out and sending and shipping? Yeah. I mean, the whole origin of the user onboard entity or business, I guess you could say, was working with a lot of questions that I wasn't going to have an answer for at the beginning. And so when I started writing the book, I had no audience in place. Nobody knew me. I, I mean, I had like friends who were designers, but you know, no Twitter following, no email list, like nothing. And I didn't really know who was going to buy it if I, if I even wrote it. And so there were some ways that I was able to kind of de-risk it as I went along. But if you approach things in sort of a lean startup-y kind of way and try to identify your assumptions and especially your riskiest assumptions and validate or invalidate those as you move along, One of the assumptions that I brought to it was like, oh, of course, I'm going to need to find like a printer and do a print run and try to, you know, anticipate how many I should pay for so that I don't just have boxes of them sitting around or whatever. And then I was like, or maybe I just don't offer the print version and see what happens then. And I can say that I am aware of single digits worth of sales that didn't happen because it wasn't offered in print. And I have thousands of sales that that did happen in digital only format. So um, it, it's definitely not something where I like learned a painful lesson, at least not one that I'm aware <laughs> of. No, it's great because, you know, a lot of people, I think, know that they can uh, offer value and teach something and create an ebook, but they don't because they say, you know, ebooks are ebooks and, you know, they're afraid that they don't sell. But you created something that sells and has a great package around it and seems to be working. 
it does seem to be working. And and I can also say that, you know, I had a very strong sense of conflict in, in writing the book initially, essentially to be like, who am I to tell people what they should be doing with user onboarding? Like, I'm not recognized as an expert. And I didn't really even have like an audience at the very beginning. And so there's that sort of, uh, what's the word when you when you feel like you don't belong there. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. So there was definitely that sort of a feeling. And I did a lot of research because I didn't know a lot about how to self-publish things either or how to price things or all kinds of different, you know, relevant experience in just bringing a product to market. And so I was doing a lot of research on self-publishing and was very fortunate to come along a piece of advice that really helped me get over the hump with that, which was essentially that if you're good enough at something to charge people for you to help them with it, then you're good enough to charge them to teach them about it. And as soon as I realized that, it really helped me focus what the content of the book should be and also definitely kind of helped knock that piece of doubt off my shoulder. I don't know. I don't think doubt lives on your shoulders, but awesome. whatever. I think I just mixed up a metaphor, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But, but I think it's a great thing that I think a lot of the listeners can take with them right now. You know, if you're great at really charging people for consulting services and something, then you might as well also teach it, you know? And I think that also teaching it to people helps spread it in a scale that you can't as just one person going around companies and helping them out. Yeah, and it's also something where, you know, kind of one last element to the whole imposter syndrome sort of thing. Um, one person who I was really, really lucky to have been aware of to research a lot in just in the world of entrepreneurialism, in addition to product development, is um, Patrick McKenzie. And he said somewhat recently that the world needs a lot more people who are two days into something help educating people who are one day into something. And so I think that if you wait until you're a quote unquote expert, you maybe have amassed enough familiarity with something where you actually have a hard time relating it to people because you just have cultivated like such a sophistication on a particular topic, or you don't remember what it was like to be trying to wrap your head around it when you first started 30 years ago or whatever. So I would actively encourage people who aren't experts to try to put themselves out there and see if they can build that expertise in a legitimate and genuine way. But just putting yourself out there, I think, can yield much better things than than you might be concerned about. Actually, it connects to a direct question that I had written down. Okay. <laughs> so because it's something that we try to kind of teach creatives as well, we have something called a side project accelerator where, where we take people and tell them, hey, like you're a professional, then you know, you should write about it, you should create a newsletter about it, and you should get audience around it, because that thing will kind of help you out as a professional in your field. Mm -hmm. So do you think every kind of designer that's starting out, even people that are starting out should start writing and, and documenting their process? Yeah, I mean, with the caveat that if you don't enjoy it, then you know, don't force yourself to necessarily. But you know, I would say that it is definitely a great way to market yourself and to expand your professional opportunities and options. So I'm definitely in agreement with you there. And and I would also add that it's depending on one's philosophy, I think it's a very good thing to do for the world in general, that if you look at the history of humankind, the things that people have been able to accomplish because of our collective intelligence or, you know, shared information with each other, that if you come across something that works really well or is a helpful perspective or a an effective technique or whatever that might be, 
to share it with the world, I think, is a great thing to do, even if it doesn't come back to you directly, necessarily. So <laughs> for all kinds of reasons, I'm, I'm a big proponent of sharing things freely and kind of approaching things in such a way that they're not really viewed as like a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So back to you being a professional, Patrick McKenzie, I've been reading his stuff as well. And he's talking about where you get to the stage as a consultant, where you need to kind of get more people to work with you in order for you to scale your operation. Now, how do you see it in your operations as a consultant, as one man? I mean, you can't split yourself between companies. Is, do you have any plan around like scaling your operation there? It's funny. I, I literally was just talking about this over dinner tonight. Um, <laughs> I have zero interest in growing a big company to just have a big company. I can kind of see how, you know, that's sort of a pervasive value yardstick in the startup world. But if I can do something on my own or if I can do something with a four person team, I would not want to do so with a 40 person team. I, I really like keeping things small, human scale, relatable, personable. It's just it's, from a sanity perspective, it's something where I really don't aspire to increase headcount. In fact, I would say that that would go under the cons list of growing my operation. Yeah. So for me personally, I really like working alone or with like a very small group of trusted people and keeping things kind of flexible and agile that way is a really nice bonus as well. So I do like the idea of scaling impact and legacy and I am not opposed to scaling revenue, but I don't see like, you know, creating an office building and, and getting up to, you know, hundreds of employees and everyone like wears lanyards and things like that. Is, that's <laughs> totally not my, yeah, yeah. not my goal whatsoever. I don't think it's any millennials goals anyways, but the thing that I am like confronted with, like at least at the moment um, when doing a bit of consultancy work, you know, people are now starting to understand that, you know, uh, selling their time is not scalable in a way and therefore a lot of people get people to work with them and then they manage them you know but then the actual professional is not in-house with the company so mm-hmm. you, you know what i'm saying so like you go inside the company people want samuel hulik i mean you have all your stuff online people appreciate your opinion okay and then even a, a situation where in some companies if you come and say uh, that you have people working with you they would say no thank you we want samuel so how do you go about that? Do you, are you planning to work alone inside companies or are you planning to scale that operation? Even if for a few people just that you're managing? Yeah, well, I think that there are different ways to scale. I, I, you know, if I were to invest a lot of my time in creating like a video course, um, I would probably collaborate with other people in making that, but I wouldn't be installing them as permanent fixtures in my business or anything like that. And then, you know, back to like the stair step metaphor, that would be theoretically at least fulfilling a, or meeting a market demand and would be coming at a commensurately relevant price point. And so, you know, again, I guess it's really just a question of what your business goals are, but I'm pretty sure I could achieve outsized revenue without a one-to-one growth in the employee number. And so I think that there are a lot of different ways to scale. And so the ones that tend to be more automated and more self-serve on the consuming end 
are ones that I find myself more drawn to, which is also relevant because, you know, that's what I focus on as a designer yeah. uh, with software. So that's helpful. And then what you alluded to also, like the idea of people who build up some level of expertise on a topic who then promote themselves out of actually working on the thing that they are skilled at doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I'm definitely not in this position because I just want to have a business and this one seemed like it made sense, but I could just as well be like selling pens or strip malls or something like that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in the position that I am because I'm really passionate, genuinely passionate about this particular topic. And the idea of delegating the ins and outs of working in this capacity and learning in the field and all of that is pretty akin to like delegating a vacation or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. So for those reasons, yeah, I'm definitely not looking to outsource myself in any real substantial capacity. It's awesome. I really thank you for that answer because you're the first person that actually I talked to that, you know, like there's a lot of freelancers listening to the show right now as well. And a lot of designers that, you know, want to be freelancers one day. And most of the people that I talk to are like, of course, that if you are a freelancer, you can't keep being a freelancer all the time. You will have to have people and therefore, you know, manage them and send them off to companies and, you know, just like art direct them from far. And you're the first person who's really, really kind of confident about, you know, scaling in different ways. And when you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense, of course. So thank you for that answer. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and and you, you talked about business goals. Do you have any? I mean, do you do, you do you like some kind of plan uh, yearly, half yearly, monthly? I used to go on quarterly retreats and those were really helpful. And I guess the fact that I'm talking about it in the past tense means that I should really consider doing them again because I guess that <laughs> means I have stopped doing them. <laughs> But yeah, that generally is really helpful for me. It's also something where I very consciously avoid setting goals that are purely monetary. To me, that feels really arbitrary. And once you make a decent enough amount of money, or at least for me, I was really surprised at like, oh, I just don't really want a lot more stuff. I'm not driven enough by money to do something only for money. And the things that really motivate me much more are, I guess, what you would call contributions to humanity or whatever one's like impact or legacy might be. Or even just, you know, for me personally, learning alone is highly motivational. So those are the kind of goals that I tend to set. But generally speaking, thinking in terms of progress or growth and growing particular KPIs or particular metrics that really closely align with my ambitions is how I project out like from one quarter to another and things along those lines. But it's really, really rare that that's just like make X thousand dollars or something like that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I think that we are in, you know, in general, our generation is kind of understanding that it's not all about money. But although, like you said, you, you did business goals and you did set business goals. So I think goals are important. And you said that you went on quarterly retreats. Can you give an example of what those were? Sure. I, it would just be, I live in Portland, Oregon, so in the Pacific Northwest. And if you get on Airbnb and move the map 20 minutes outside of the city, there are a lot of mountain cabins and things like that. And so I would, as a quarterly practice, just find a different cabin that I hadn't been to and drive out and be there for a couple of days and just, you know, literally and figuratively unplug and just write out on paper what it is that I planned on doing and what the most important areas of growth for me were and how I could confirm that I was staying on track with them very cool idea yeah interesting yeah i think that it's not something that a lot of people would do you know just take themselves and you know go and find a cabin and kind of like do companies big companies do off-sites right so it makes sense that if you're like a one-man show you would also do some kind of off-site you know <laughs> retreat 
Yeah, and it's not something where I'm, like, you know, riding on zip lines or hiring a personal chef or anything. Like, it's just me just going out with a backpack <laughs> into a cabin. So it's not, not like, the hardest <laughs> thing to plan or anything like that. Yeah, no, it sounds awesome. All right, so right now we talked about a lot of stuff that you're doing, but we didn't talk about one thing, and that's software. You are working right now on some kind of software, right? I was working on some software maybe about two years ago and decided that the timing wasn't really right for a number of reasons. So I'm not actively pursuing that right now, but possibly in the future. All right. So also, do you do like workshops? Do you go and do public speaking gigs as well? Or I mean, do you look out for those things? I find myself speaking at conferences like a handful of times per year. And I also put on my own workshops. I've done a few in Amsterdam and a few in San Francisco and, and definitely will look to continue doing those there and beyond. So I really, really enjoy putting on workshops because it lets me work with more than one client at a time, which is helpful kind of from the scaling standpoint. But it's also something where I get to work really intimately with people. So it's not just like standing on a stage under a spotlight and yammering on for an hour or whatever. So yeah. those are some of my favorite things to do, actually. And for anyone who wants to create workshop for themselves, like, do you have any tips for creating a successful workshop? Probably. <laughs> it's definitely something that, like when I was self-publishing the book, I did it in a very studious capacity where like, I did a ton of research about self-publishing and a ton of research on, of course, onboarding as well, <laughs> but just like how to create the product that I was looking to create. Uh -huh. And in the case of the workshops, It, that stemmed a lot more from me recognizing that when I do work as a consultant, a lot of times I find myself going in and saying the same things or walking people through the same exercises or things along those lines. And so the goal for the workshops was to approach it in such a way that I was, over the course of an afternoon, training people to go back to their companies and do what I would do as if I were consulting with them individually. And so the workshop was designed much more around things that I was already doing, things that I already found were successful within the field. So I could talk about workshop formatting or things like that. But honestly, you know, it's I wouldn't say that that's the most amazing part of the workshop that I offer. It's much more focused on like just delivering as much hard hitting recommendations, tactics, strategies that I can. But I think you give a really good point there that you said that the kind of inspiration and the lessons and I guess the subject matter for the workshop came out of the things that you were doing when you were consulting and you started repeating them or realizing that, you know, more than one client had this problem. So I think that's a really good takeaway for people who are freelancing or consulting now that are thinking about this, you know, to start maybe making a list of the things that you're repeating or the things that are happening in different capacities with multiple clients. Yeah. And, and you know, going back to the whole stair step concept, like if there's one particular thing that I do, I could create a blog post version. I could create a video course version. I could incorporate that into the workshop. I could even open up like a full service on it. Lifecycle emails literally was an article that I wrote first and then a component of the workshop and is now being spun out into its own individual offering. So you can take the germ of an idea and grow it in different capacities as well. Yeah, it's very interesting to kind of see how those evolve. So what, what excites you right now, like the most about of all of the things that you're doing, what excites you the most right now? Well, I may, I may be sounding like a bit of a broken record and I, I'm not trying to come across as self-promotional, but lifecycle emails, I think the more time I invest in studying them and exploring that opportunity space, the more I come away excited about it in general and convinced that it's one of the highest ROI levers that you can pull within an organization. 
So that is definitely what's on my mind the most lately, especially with its sort of like we were mentioning, like lightweight MVP like way of going in and experimenting on an ongoing basis. There's a lot of opportunity there. There are a lot of different kinds of emails that you can send as well. And so the, all the nuance involved is, is just pretty endlessly fascinating to me. And that's really something that I, I think about very consistently these days. Do you think like every company should have someone in charge of lifecycle emails and, you know, onboarding, running experiments with lifecycle emails? I wouldn't say always, or I wouldn't say in that prescriptionist of a, of a way, <laughs> and maybe I'm a little biased, but yes, if, if I were to give you a short answer, I would say that there are a criminal amount of companies who have like three lifecycle emails total that go out, which is like, welcome, thanks for signing up. And then like 13 days later, it's like, your trial's about to expire. <laughs> and then two months later, it's like, we miss you come back and like it's just not adding value to anyone it's not improving anything or helping anyone make progress it was probably written by like an engineering intern three years ago and <laughs> nobody's just been collecting dust ever since so yeah. i mean this is like literally this is what companies have told me so i'm not just i'm not even making this up <laughs> and so yeah i would say you don't need someone you wouldn't want to like staff it out if that's all you were doing but there's so much opportunity to send back resurrection emails to people who maybe they signed up a year ago and and it wasn't really relevant to them then, but it could be now. Um, you can be sending annual upgrade emails to get people off of paying monthly and have them pay annually so you can get a cash infusion, I guess you could say. Anything that's tailored around getting people to take particular actions within your product. You can send them to-do lists with items that are customized as being checked off or not, depending on whether someone's already done them or not, so on and so forth. And to me, it's just, it's a really, I guess I would actually compare it to user onboarding in a way where when I first started studying user onboarding, I thought that it was a pretty narrow niche and that maybe I could take a couple days and learn everything that I needed to about it. And then, you know, here I am years later and I'm still learning new things. And I thought that the lifecycle email component of user onboarding would be a pretty tiny and constrained subset that would have some general best practices, but wouldn't just have like a, a whole universe of variety unto itself. And I can definitely say that it's kind of happening again in that sense, that the more I crack the hood, the more I see that there's a lot of complexity and possibility and, and therefore opportunity there. Yeah, awesome. And you also seem to be doing a lot of like, I mean, you're, you're a great micro copywriter, if I, can, if I can call it that. I mean, all your copy around the site and in your teardowns, it's kind of like full of humor and also like personality, I would say. So it seemed to be booming right now, you know, in the design industry, everybody's talking about UX writing and micro copy. What's your take on that? I think it's hugely important for sure. I have some experience in the creative agency world. And especially there, you know, things are so focused on the on the polish and the reveal, the kind of like Mad Men, Don Draper sort of easel kind of a thing. And you would see a lot of interfaces being mocked up or comped up and the copy just being Laura Mipsum that like, you know, just filler that you're going to figure out later. And for me, it's pretty much the opposite. I always start from a place of trying to understand where someone currently is that they're not super satisfied with and where they hope to be transported to with your product in their life. And then from there, it's pretty much like straight to the words after that. So just thinking about how to facilitate progress you know, meaningful, relevant progress for someone. But, you know, a lot of that is providing verbal cues and prompts and establishing the right kind of tone and trying to generate the right combination of emotions in the person so that they are feeling properly motivated and oriented around the thing that they need to be doing at the time. You know, drumming up enthusiasm or just 
being persuasive in general is very much accomplished in the realm of words. And so the software world seems to have something of a cultural legacy of being focused on the visuals and doing a lot of the quote unquote thinking in something like Photoshop and then sort of sprinkling the words in after. And I'm really happy to see that that's something that has really been shifting over the last few years, especially but I do think that we still have a lot of baggage and just how products are created as far as being things that are, you know, patterns of pixels that display on a screen versus thinking of products as meaningful change in someone's life, regardless of how you get there. Yeah, totally. Interesting thing that, you know, there was such a big gap, you know, between how software companies are using copy. And I mean, I worked at Fiverr like six years ago, almost six years ago. And you know, Fiverr.com? Mm-hmm. So I was like their first designer six years ago. And, and back then it was clear that the copy should be personal and we should have like slang, using slang. And the micro copy was not even a thing. It was just taken from grad and it was just, of course, we should use personal copy. And then in a lot of other software companies that I came in touch with, it was like everything was so cold. And I met so many product managers and people that were like, no, just use the word, you know, okay. And button you know Mm -hmm. and yeah now it seemed to be booming and i'm also happy for that i think that actually you could because you're you're a very good micro copywriter you can take that and develop it as a as a thing of its own if you want (laughs) Um, so cool but i guess i mean this has a lot to do with already going into life cycle emails the copy that you're writing inside of it and i wanted to ask you one thing when you were talking about the emails before you've talked about how the copy and emails are really like the platform and the way that it's easy to test out new things and to kind of check your goals and see if they're working for the users. Mm -hmm. Is that for all products, whether they're a web app or even a mobile app? Is email still the platform that you can do that kind of like MVP and that's like the way that you're testing things? Yeah, for sure. I can definitely say, you know, in the wild, I tend to find that mobile apps focus less on email than desktop or laptop SaaS type apps do, but it doesn't mean that you can't approach it in that way at all. With mobile apps, you're always facing different constraints when you're designing for mobile regardless. The screen is smaller, but it has an accelerometer or you can use voice more naturally or whatever. You know, there are all kinds of different trade-offs. And in the world of mobile, you have more things at your disposal as far as like notifications are concerned, things like that. But email is still, especially if you're using it, even just as a discovery tool, much less a retention tool, still definitely something that you can use to drive a lot of engagement. So I would say that it maybe depends a little bit more on the context within which you're working. I can see some products as having a tougher sell for prompting a particular action through email, but that wouldn't necessarily be because it's mobile or because it's B2C or something like that. I think that if you have a consistent tone that you can pipe that through multiple channels and and email is a really reliable one pretty much across the board. Yeah, I was wondering if maybe in in the case of mobile apps, if notifications take over or are they still not giving you the same effect that you're going for with the lifecycle emails? Notifications are something that from an onboarding perspective, I haven't studied a whole lot. They are still messaging. So in that sense, they're definitely kind of sister options, but for reasons including not necessarily having as much of an ease with analytics and things like that within the notifications world, that hasn't tended to be something that I focus a lot on. Also, you can of course opt out of emails, but in my, maybe this is just anecdotal experience, find it's a lot easier to turn off notifications and just, you know, operate without that being present whatsoever. And so for robustness, reliability, 
analytics and reasons beyond that, email is the one that I happen to choose to focus a lot more on. But if we're talking from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I am sure that someone could do a deep dive on notifications and turn it into some sort of training material and start a business around that. So by all means, <laughs> whoever might be listening, go for it. <laughs> well, that, that's a good point. Definitely. That even in the case where it might be the most useful, like in the mobile app, it still doesn't compare with email with the analytics and kind of the universal use. Yeah, I'm sure there are people who are like, of course you can have analytics for notifications. And and I'm sure that's true, but it's not something that has fallen into my direct experience, especially as a consultant at this point. So I haven't really put it front and center on my radar exactly. So when you're working with a new client or a workshop or you're giving advice to someone on how to get started with lifecycle emails, are there a few most important steps that you can tell them, like the most important points that you're seeing over and over that people should definitely be implementing? Yeah, I mean, from a just a general, almost philosophical, standpoint, the question that I always come back to is, how do you even know what people should be doing to begin with? You can create a tooltip tour within your product that points out all these different screens and features, but if that's not what people are finding relevant, or if that's not what's ultimately very strongly correlated with retention and engagement, then it's probably not something that you should be wasting their time with. It's kind of like a wild goose chase. And so what I really strongly recommend that people do is create what I call a successful user recipe, which basically says, let's say 100 people sign up for your product. If you come back three months later, who knows what your retention rates are, but let's say that those people are now down to 20 people. So there's a sense of attrition, especially right at the beginning. You know, a lot of the statistics that I've seen thrown around, and this definitely corresponds to my experience as well, is that roughly half of the people who sign up for your product never even come back a second time. So you're already like fighting with one hand tied behind your back right from the very get-go. So the drop-off curve can be quite steep before it kind of reverse plateaus, I guess you could say. And from that perspective, if you look at the people who did make it all the way through and find ways, especially if you're tracking user activity at a granular enough level, if you can go in and, and find things that they did differently than the average sign up when they signed up, then that's a really strong indication that you should be getting the average people to do more of what the successful people did right from the beginning, because then that set them up to be successful over time. And so a lot of what I like to do with lifecycle emails is with the information that's already at hand, identify what those really strongly correlated actions are, and then do an audit of the existing emails and see if, you know, which ones are even being prompted or not. And then wherever there are gaps, then fill those in with different emails. And then also just use it as an ongoing iterative experimental kind of method where as you create new emails or as you adjust the subject line copy or as you experiment with with sending it out at different time intervals, see what kind of effect that has on people. Anything that leads to an uptick in engagement and retention probably means that it's an activity that should be promoted. Anything that doesn't have a really strong correlation probably means that there's opportunity lying elsewhere. So I don't know if that was tactical enough of a recommendation, but that's the general process that I follow. Okay, cool. It's kind of like find the outliers, if you will, and then try to get the majority or the rest of the audience to mirror the outliers that you like. Yeah. And, you know, they're only outliers because maybe you're just not familiar enough with what people are looking for or what they're finding relevant. So the outliers could become very central if you can demonstrate that they are a really effective and efficient lever to pull. It's also something where if you take any product and 
and map out what the absolute core unquestionable path to value is, you know, you can look at something like having a conversation on Skype required a lot of just required steps where you had to download it, you had to open the installer, you had to add it to applications, you had to open it with a live internet connection, you needed to create an account, you needed to find someone, you needed to coordinate a time to call them. Like these are all things that are just absolute must haves. And if you don't have a process in place that inches people along that line of progress whenever they might be getting stuck or having an opportunity to just kind of flake off and never come back again, you definitely should. So it doesn't even have to be like crazy, like, oh, it turns out if we ask people to invite a friend on the 20th day after signing up, it works really well. There are probably some things that are fringy or seem fringy at first notice, but there are also probably a lot of things that are just absolute must-haves that don't have any kind of email prompt or in-app prompt or something along those lines that is also definitely an opportunity. In that sense, I call lifecycle emails guardrails for motivation because like when you signed up, you wanted to be living a better life of some kind with our product in it. And you were thinking that you were going to become a more capable, more successful person. We want to make sure you get to where you wanted to get to. So here's an email telling you one step in that process. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's not something where you're going in and nagging people to do things at your bidding. You're trying to remind them what the value that they were aspiring to get was and encourage them to keep moving along. And I think your take on that also is something that a lot of people have a fear when they're sending emails. When we're discussing newsletters or emails with people as well, that they're constantly saying, well, I don't want to badger people. I don't want to spam them. But if you can tell yourself that exactly like you said, that what you're doing is you're actually helping them achieve their goal and your copy and your messaging and the timing of the email is doing that, then you have nothing to kind of to fear. You're not spamming them. You're not hurting them or something. You're actually providing them value and helping them achieve that goal. Yeah, completely. I 100% agree with you that if you don't want to spam people, don't send spam. There are, there are ways <laughs> to send really relevant, helpful emails. If you're genuinely invested in helping someone make progress in their life, you can totally do that in a way that's not badgering people or, you know, isn't spoiling the relationship. And then on that note too, if someone signed up for your product and didn't do anything and hasn't been back for a week or two, what relationship are you really worried about jeopardizing at that point anyway? And on top of that, you know, you can also send emails that people like to get. You don't have to just nag people to do things. You can also congratulate them on the things that they have been doing. Like some of my favorite lifecycle emails, Medium has one where if your post gets five recommendations, they send you an email and says your post is on the move and like they don't even actually ask you to do anything they're just like by the way congrats and like that's pretty much the extent of the email so or maybe they're like imagine what it could do if you shared it on social media here's a twitter link or something like that so i recommend not just creating your lifecycle email system around telling people how inadequate they are but (laughs) mixing it up so that when your name pops up in their inbox it could be a good news it could be a pleasant surprise it could be a helpful recommendation or whatever but you're building a positive relationship with them over time. You're not just trying to get anonymous people units to do things that are good for your company. That was really nice. I like the idea of saying that here's something that good that happens to you while using our product and kind of giving them that context that, okay, I don't have to do anything. I'm not doing anything wrong. And look, like my post is taking off. Okay, so I should do more posts on Medium because it's a place where posts take off. You know, <laughs> it's a nice concept to say, totally. Just, here's the context like, oh, look, good things are happening to you in our product. Yep, exactly. 
I mean, from just a purely business perspective, you're you're cultivating loyalty, you know, which can really go far. Yeah, yeah. definitely. All right, so we really have to start wrapping up. And shall we go into the lightning round? <laughs> <laughs> lightning round. Awesome. Yes, let's do it. All right, cool. So we have like a few questions and let's just shoot. You have to shoot on the top of your mind, okay? It's not something you have to think about too much, okay? Okay. All right. So what are your tips for designers just starting out? My tips for designers just starting out is speaking from a user experience design perspective, because that's what people reach out to me about for suggestions. I would say that there's a surprising amount of things that you can do to build up your expertise and experience in general without getting people's permission. So if you want to run a usability test, you can just do that. You don't even have to be paid by the company that you're reviewing. Like you can just set it up, get five people to come in and set up a camera and make it happen. And then you can say that you've done it and you can say that you have that experience and you can learn from it and benefit as a professional. So I think there's a lot out there that if you hear about card sorting or contextual inquiry or user interviews or all these things, like you can just do it. And I suggest that you just do it and then write about it and share your experience and enjoy the professional attention that comes along with it. Awesome. Okay. Now, what is your tip for freelancers? My tip for freelancers probably is to listen to Patrick McKenzie as much as possible, <laughs> either from the standpoint of the whole concept of productized consulting really opened my eyes to different possibilities. Like we were talking about how to scale yourself as a consultant. That was a really big concept for me. He also beats the drum of just charging more in general and talking about what the finances look like on the business side and not necessarily like groveling for pennies. And especially if yeah. you can build up your reputation, then that's also very achievable and is always a healthy reminder, I would say. So yeah, I would recommend he's uh, patio11 on Twitter and elsewhere, probably calzumius.com. Strongly recommend that you yes. read everything that he makes available. I'm down with that recommendation for sure. And we will put the links on the show notes. Okay, so what things do you find that come from your background that help you out in your day-to-day -day work now? I don't know if I have a good answer for that, but I can say that there are a lot of related fields to design or user experience design that I've been able to pull a lot of really helpful insights from. And a couple that immediately come to mind are video game design. There's a YouTube series called Extra Credits that breaks down the ins and outs of creating an effective tutorial or first level or how to have a compelling arc to the challenge of your game or all these kind of things. There's a lot that you can directly translate to software design there for sure. And then when you talk about designing levels and environments, the world of urban planning and architecture have a ton of things that are much more established than what we have in the software world as far as the sort of conceptual metaphors cover each other pretty nicely. Like, you know, urban planners design for commuter traffic and we design for web traffic and things like that. So there are a lot of similarities there also. But video game design and urban planning have definitely been the two biggest related fields that I've been studying really intently lately. Okay, awesome. Now, do you have a favorite tool, app, software that you use regularly and you think not enough people know about? Well, as you mentioned with writing the book, I use Keynote for for so many things. It's it's <laughs> one of my favorite software products ever made and it's free if you have a Mac and I strongly recommend giving it a shot if you don't. But like promotional material, I wrote the book in it. I do a lot of planning and like idea sketching in Keynote. I create the teardowns in Keynote. There are a lot of things that I do. It's kind of like my personal designer's notepad, but in digital form. <laughs> awesome. All right. And 
And lastly, where can we connect with you online? Sure. So pretty much everything I do goes through useronboard.com. And then if you wanted to reach out to me personally, there's at useronboard on Twitter or at Samuel Hulick on Twitter as well. All right. Awesome. So Samuel, thanks so much for your time and for this wonderful episode. There's tons of value that has been given for anyone, basically any creative listening. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and experience. And yeah, we'll see you around. Thanks Sounds like much. a plan. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone. And that's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider sharing it with a colleague or a friend that you think would benefit from listening to it. And if we may ask one more thing, please rate us on iTunes. This will help the podcast reach more audience and make us so happy. You only have to do this once, not every episode, and it has tremendous impact. Thanks a lot, hackers, and we'll see you on the next episode. What's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So I just wanted to let you know that, first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders. And that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast 
app. And I would invite you to come and listen. And that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions. It's amazing. I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business, will help you with your skills, taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals. So if you're interested in that, I'm there, The Creatorpreneur Show, and you can check it out also on YouTube. And you can also just go to creatorpreneurmagazine.com or creatorpreneur.show. I hope to see you around.